Good evening and welcome to Chicago Tonight Black Voices. I'm Angel Ito. Brandis Friedman has the evening off. Thanks for sharing a part of your weekend with us. On the show tonight, eight years after the hashtag Oscar So White trended, we look at how much the Academy has done to address its diversity problem. Get to know Father Augustus Tolton, the first black priest in the United States who could be canonized as a saint. And the birthplace of house music makes Preservation Chicago's list of most endangered buildings. And in our next Black Voices Book Club segment, author Keenan Norris uses a literary lens to explore how Chicago shaped his family. And we introduce you to a local artist creating mosaics out of unexpected items. And all of that coming up, but our first story tonight, it's known that Hollywood has a big night, a look at how far the Oscars have come in addressing representation, and that's right after this. Chicago Tonight, Black Voices, is made possible in part by Fifth Third Bank and by the support of these donors. We believe when diverse voices are heard and empowered, communities are made stronger, lives are made better, and the future holds greater promise for all. That's why we're proud to support Chicago Tonight Black Voices. Together, we can make a difference. Together, we can drive change. Now, this weekend's Academy Awards will see historic Asian representation, but the Oscars are still coming under fire over issues of representation. And it comes eight years after the hashtag Oscar So White led to a reckoning through the Academy. But despite some changes, no black director has ever won Best Director and no black woman has ever received a directing nomination. Now, this year, the historical action adventure film, The Woman King, starring Viola Davis, was considered to be the film that might finally break that best director barrier. Here's a clip. Naniska, it is a victory. They are here for you. They do not know an evil is coming. They know you will protect them. I wish to speak to the king. He's only saying wise today. Tell him. I will wait. Now joining us to talk about this year's Oscar nominations are film critic Robert Daniels and director and DePaul University filmmaking professor Rachel Bass. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Rachel, let's start with you. Mm -hmm. um, the Woman King, critical success, no Oscar nominations. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's telling that The Woman King was not nominated for a single category. And by all looks, it did everything right. It was a $50 million budget film. It was a box office success. Um, black, entirely black uh, lead female cast, black director. And so the question is, how could the Academy not recognize that when other films, especially in the act action-adventure category, have historically been nominated? Mm. Robert, what about you? What are your thoughts about zero nominations? Um, you know, there's a part of me that's very surprised by it, and yet there's a part of me that isn't surprised by it, knowing the historical barriers behind black directors and filmmakers and black stories being honored. 
Um, and so when I, on nomination morning, when the, the nominations dropped and I saw the woman king was not nominated, I was shocked to see it totally blanked. And yet I wasn't shocked that it underperformed, mostly because we've seen this story before, and especially since 2015 with Oscar so white. Mm. Rachel, now we know that the Academy has made some changes to increase diversity among its membership. Do you feel like enough progress has been made? I think when we think about progress, we have to think about knee-jerk reactions and long-term deep systemic change. So 2015 was the first of two consecutive years of um, consecutive all-white actor nominees. And historically, white men have dominated in the best director categories. So then, after 2016, we saw a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction from the Academy when, you know, Moonlight won uh, Best Picture. Um, you had um, Best uh, Supporting Actor, Mahershala Ali won, Viola Davis for Fences. And so um, there was a little bit more representation. I will add that in Best Supporting Act Actor and Actress categories, those tend to be the most diverse categories as opposed to, as opposed to the lead actor categories. And so then after that, there were a couple of wins, but I think now that we're back to a, most, uh, a mostly all-white leading actress category, an all-white actor category, and with the exception of Daniel Kwan, an all-white male director, cat a director lineup, the question is, was 2017 a fluke? Or were those considered handouts? Or was there lasting deep systemic change? And at this point now, given, you know, definitely a milestone in Asian representation, as you pointed out, is the default going back to most white filmmakers, especially behind the camera? Hmm. So, Robert, Rachel just talked about maybe like a fluke or a handout or just different ways that black actors and directors have been snubbed. Um, and so it's led to conversation about looking at other spaces in Hollywood where we can kind of criticize the issue and look at changes. Where, where else do you think that we should be looking? Yeah, I mean, I think as great or as thoughtful as Oscar So White tried to be, I think the problem was it was just Oscar So White instead of the entire ecosystem being so white. So if you look at the Directors Guild of America, every year they do their five winners, five nominees. Um, and typically the five nominees are the five nominees that show up at the Academy Awards. However, uh, they have never nominated a black woman as best director in the entire history. Um, and so when you see someone already failing at what's considered a precursor to even get to the Academy Awards, then we're not talking about just the Academy Awards as a space that needs to improve, that needs to change. We're talking about the entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So I think from the top down, from the precursors like DGA, SAG, Golden Globes, all the way down to critics groups, and especially at the studio level where studios are deciding what films get the proper budget that's needed in order to compete for an Academy Award. And so I think we have to look at the whole system rather than just one component of it. Mm -hmm. And Rachel, you talked about this a little bit in your, in your work that I read online, of this kind of hot potato concept of maybe uh, filmmakers are not feeling like they have the support to receive an Oscar nom, and so they don't do the work required to get the nom, versus maybe like the Academy is not even looking at certain films. So how do, how do you think that we can address this crazy eight, if you will, where mm -hmm. no one is really taking accountability and pushing that change forward. 
I think first and foremost, we have to stop treating the Oscars as about talent and storytelling. I think that's putting the cart before the horse. This is fundamentally about access and power. So to me, it's a non-issue whether, you know, people say, but don't you think, like, the best picture, they're great movies and talent. I loved, we were talking earlier, I loved many of the movies that are in the lineup. It's not about talent. But what Gina Prince Blythewood was talking about with The Woman King and why it was significant is because it did everything right. $50 million uh, budget for a female-led uh, action adventure was virtually almost unheard of. And so it's about power and access and why someone like Andrea Riseborough, who led a grassroots campaign and was nominated in the leading actress category for a beautiful performance, I would say, but what the rules of this game are. So I think in answering this question and uh, talking about that crazy eight that you're talking about, I think we have to stop moving away from this is great cinema and this is great storytelling. Maybe in like two decades, once things have equaled out, we can begin to talk about that. But first and foremost, we do have to think about this deeper overhaul of power and access and how to fund more movies so that also roles are written for people of color to be able to be nominated. Absolutely. And so we've talked a lot about director snubs, but we haven't even talked about supporting actresses. So mm -hmm. Angela Bass Bassett did receive a nomination yes. for her supporting performance in Wakanda Forever. Here's a clip. We mourn the loss of our king, but do not think for a second that Wakanda has lost her ability to protect our resources. We are of the ongoing efforts by some to find vibranium outside of Wakanda and wish the best of luck. So we see there Angela Bassett in Wakanda Forever, and we know that several black women have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress or Actor Films, but never received Best. Um, what work do you think needs to be done to affect change in the long run? Robert, let's start with you. We've got about 30 seconds left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, a, yeah, a black woman has not won Best Actress since, or there's only been one, Halle Berry from Monsters Ball. And so when you're thinking about how do we, you know, affect change and try to get more actresses in there, I think particularly um, what Rachel mentioned is that we have to get write more roles, basically. I mean, there are roles that exist, and that certainly helps, um, but there just isn't enough being produced, mostly because of the economic restrictions upon what movies get made and what movies don't get made. Um, and then even when they are made, what movies get put in front of viewers, what movies get put in front of awards body. So it's really just follow the money. Rachel, I'm so sorry we're out of time. You made a lot of great thoughts, but we're out of time. So our thanks to Robert Daniels and Rachel Bass. The first recognized African-American Roman Catholic priest is on the road to sainthood. Father Augustus Tolton's journey from enslaved child to priest is the subject of a series of events happening at the Tolton Heritage Center in Bronzeville. Now, Bishop Joseph Perry, who was leading the cause for Tolton's canonization, says there are many reasons to learn more about the man affectionately known as Good Father Gus. We're at St. Elizabeth's Church which 
is now the Tolton Heritage Center, named after the first African-American priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago. Oh, really, the first African-American priest to serve in the United States anywhere. Although Tolton was a former slave, he and his family were slaves in northeast Missouri during the time of our Civil War. It's a five-part series that delves into the life and the background of Father Tolton coming from the 19th century and looking into his virtues that uh, form the dossier for his hopeful canonization as a saint one day of the Catholic Church. It's to spread the story to make sure that people are acquainted with Tolton, why he is such an important figure in our history, not only of the past, but even carrying a message for the present, given the struggles that we have with um, racism today still. Uh, Father Tolton gives us a couple of examples on how we handle the Christian life and walking through the gauntlet of ups and downs and sorrows and joys of life. He did it rather heroically as a Christian, proved himself a Christian in all of that, and was open to everybody, white or black. Our previous Archbishop, uh, Cardinal Francis George, back in 2010, had read the definitive biography on Tolton, which came out in about 1973. It's titled From Slave to Priest. And he was so in touch by the story, he remarked to me one day that he was going to ask the Vatican if they would consider naming him a saint for all that we put him through. And that's how it started. We want more and more people to know about him. I think he has something to say to young people, even elderly people, as a great human being, a great Christian, and someone who has a message who by his life still touches the world, still touches the African-American Catholic community especially. Now there are four evenings with Tolton events over the coming months and you'll find more information on our website. Up next, the latest selection in our Black Voices Book Club. For young black boys and men, Chicago can be a cradle and a crucible, a place where they can encounter both endless inspiration and endless despair. In our next Black Voices Book Club selection, Shy Boy, Native Sons and Chicago Reckonings, author Kenan Norris moves back and forth in time, drawing connections between the experiences of literary giants and those of his own father as a young black man in Chicago. Joining us now is the book's author and San Jose State University professor, Keenan Norris. Keenan, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. That is great to hear. So let's get right into it. Okay, so you quote a lot of different authors in your book, which we'll get to later, Frank Marshall Davis, Richard Wright. Uh, but you never seem to, to my knowledge, visit Chicago. Is that correct? And if so, why not? Oh, so I have definitely visited Chicago. However, I've never made Chicago my home. My father was from Chicago and you know, grew up uh, in Chicago and left um, in his late teens to come to California, went to college in California and settled down here. Um, so I was raised in California and uh, like most people, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've stayed put. So, um, 
But I'm part of what I'm really interested in is how um, Chicago has been a place that those who leave the place that they're born you know, have come to stay. Why I, I my only pushback against that is I feel like to write about an experience of living in a city that you've never lived in seems uh, can't think of the right word here, but I think you might understand. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think that you know uh, that I I, I want to respond in two ways to your to your question. One. Um, let me explain why it was uh, why I was drawn to write about Chicago. Um, because of my father's stories, my father's impact on me, uh, the stories that my father told me um, about growing up in Chicago and my larger fascination with the Great Migration, um, I came to see Chicago, I came to understand Chicago as particularly important in um, the history of Black America and our larger American narrative. So, um, so Chicago has always held a particularly important place for me, sort of uh, on that level. How would you say that? Oh, sorry to cut you that, off there. Well, um, yeah, I, I would. I would also say just you know real quickly that you know writers oftentimes uh, do write about places they haven't lived. I I think that. Um, you should not write about a place you've never been to or don't have any experience of, but um, those are two different things. So you refer to Richard Wright a lot in your book. How do you think that he helped illustrate your father's experience growing up here? Yeah, so um, my father gave me a number of books to read. When I was 13 years old, he gave me James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. He said, read this and they'll know more about who I am. He gave me Richard Wright's native son when I was 14 years old and said, read this and you'll know more about where I'm from. So really Richard Wright's native son and then black boy uh, Wright's memoir, the full title of which is actually American Hunger. Uh, those two books, which my father gave me in this kind of preparatory you know, at home African-American literature course that I, you know, grew up with, um, it became really definitional for me, those those uh, books of right did. And um, they, they helped to illustrate for me some truths, uh, some realities about Chicago in the mid 20th century and some uh, realities of the Great Migration, which my father's family and my father himself was a part of um, and really became you know central to my understanding of how we became an urban people a primarily urban people whether we're on the west coast like myself or in the north like uh, folks in Chicago and New York and Detroit and so forth and even down south at this point. So, Keenan, we've got about a minute left here. I'd love to hear our final thoughts and what you hope people will get out of this book and understanding uh, Chicago better. Yeah. Um, well, I want them to take a number of things away from reading the book. One, I think that my family's story and also Richard Wright's story illustrate uh, some things that are important, some important history 
of early and mid 20th century Chicago's black history and how it was shaped by the great migration. I also think that uh, where I revisit Frank Marshall Davis's story, that that sheds light on a figure who, who has been maligned really unfairly uh, politically. And finally, uh, what I have to say about Chirac, about that term, um, is I think important to media portrayals, often inaccurate and unfair, of Chicago today. Yes. Well, our thanks to Keenan Norris. And again, the book is called Chai Boy, Native Sons and Chicago Reckonings. You can read an excerpt on our website. It's an annual report aimed at highlighting historic Chicago buildings that are most in danger of demolition. The Chicago 7 Most Endangered List was created to sound the alarm and rally support for such buildings. It is now in its 20th year and cracking this year's list was a modest three-story building in the West Loop that was once the hottest dance club in town. Here's Paris Schutz with Preservation Chicago's Executive Director, Ward Miller. This is where uh, Frankie Knuckles uh, started his career uh, spinning records. And uh, this is a very popular uh, place in the 1970s and 1980s where house music was essentially born, if you will. So we find this to be an important building. It's uh, a modest building. You can see it's just only a couple stories tall. It's in the West Loop, and it's for sale right now. And it's also next to a larger site, which has a small restaurant in it. Certainly house music so influential in the world. Absolutely. coming from the name of that actual building, the warehouse in the West Loop. We'll see uh, if that can get preserved. So tell us, uh, again, you've put this list out for 20 years. Are there any notable buildings that you've saved? Because oh, you, my gosh, yes. What are your favorite ones that you saved? You know, uh, Cook County Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the old main post office, uh, numerous uh, religious buildings, churches. Um, I have to tell you, uh, a few years ago, we were the force that got the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley House landmark. And it was in West Woodlawn, a two-flat with vacant lots to its north and abandoned. And this was a site that we wanted recognized for a long time. And you can find Preservation Chicago's full list of most endangered buildings on our website, wttw.com news. Unexpected household items are the focus of a local artist creating portraits for her inner child. We visited Keila Strong to talk more about her barrette mosaics. Take a look. Typically, mosaics are made of colorful broken pieces of tile, stone, or glass, but not usually barrettes. I started with like wooden beads, um, and then I'm like, mm, I need more color. So then I was thinking hair, I was thinking barrettes, and that gave me all the color I needed, and then it was like the rest is history. It just kept growing and growing. It was her piece titled Picture Day that put Keila Strong's work on the map. The barrette specifically speaks to childhood joys. Um, I hear them, edge control, rollers, every, like, every accessory used, it holds some type of um, memory for me. And it's just comforting. It's just comforting. I don't think I appreciated it as much before. Um, me turning it into art has given me a greater appreciation just because I didn't realize, like, how important barrettes were to my childhood. Let me see. All these 
uh, accessories make this woman. So it, it shows the evolution of the black girl um, from childhood to adolescence into womanhood. From cocoa butter to bamboo earrings and every bobby pin in between, for Strong, these pieces not only reflect her growth as a woman, but the sacrifices it took to get her there. I left my job June of 22 um, and decided to pursue art full time. So it's the first time that I've been able to give everything to the arts. I was feeling like I needed to give it my all in order to do well. Um, I was already like still doing local shows, selling work, but it just wasn't enough. And I was never gonna be okay with giving whatever is left over after everything else. So I'm like, okay, I have to give this thing my all at least one at one point in my life. From a sketch to a completed mosaic, each piece takes around two weeks to complete. Strong says her future focus remains rooted in her passion, while also hopefully inspiring her son's generation. I think that art has the potential to um, spark the minds of the, the next generation of world changers. It's important that we not only like show them, you know, or you know, mentor, kind of guide them, leave a blueprint for them, but also that we encourage people along the way. I think it's important that people feel empowered and a find a light within themselves, whether it's art or not, but if it can be sparked with an idea, uh, um, I think that's the type of things that change the world. Now, Kayla Strong says she's still trying to figure out how she can ship her mosaics with all of the barrettes remaining intact. In the meantime, you can visit our website for more information about her artwork. And that's our show for this weekend. For all of us here at Chicago Tonight Black Voices, I'm Angel Ito. Thank you for sharing a part of your weekend with us. Stay healthy and safe. Good night. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a Chicago personal injury and wrongful death firm that's proud to serve its community through pro bono legal services.